All right, if you'd take your copy of God's Word this morning and open to the letter of Jude. I'm not going to tell you which chapter. You're just going to have to guess. I will say, you're going to find it right before Revelation, and if you want to leave a bookmark there, you can, because uh, Lord willing, next Sunday morning at our 9.30 service, we'll be starting the book of Revelation. So I do enjoy our new song Sundays. Um, the praises that we sing should not be an afterthought. So I always uh, like having the opportunity to explain some of the background of a new hymn and uh, also then preach from a biblical text that supports it. So the first thing I want to note about our new song, He Will Hold Me Fast, is what is intended by that word fast. I, I don't want to assume that everyone, especially our younger folks, are familiar with the usage of this word fast in this way. We usually think about fast as quick or speedy, and while God is quick to hold us, I, I'm certain the songwriter intends something different. So the word fast can mean loyal. So for example, if you've ever heard the phrase that they were fast friends, that, that means you've got a friend who's loyal, faithful, steadfast, inseparable, and surely that is true about our Lord Jesus. Never has anyone had such a faithful friend. But I suspect the songwriter intends a more common meaning of the word fast to mean secure, immovable, or firmly fixed. That's what's intended here. Through the Lord Jesus, God will hold you fast. He will hold you firmly fixed. He will not let you go. By way of background, you may have noticed when you, when you looked at the song that verses 1 and 2 and verse 3 were actually written by different people. So let me just give you a little bit of the background of this new hymn that we're singing. The story actually begins with a couple of men who are not listed on that hymn page at all. In 1902, an evangelist named Reuben Torrey was touring Australia and preaching meetings, and when he came to this small town, he needed a piano player, and so he was introduced to a man named Robert Harkness and asked if Robert would be willing to play at the revival meetings, and uh, Robert Harkness was not enthused about attending revival meetings, but he decided to do it just because he knew it would make his mom and dad happy. Although later on, Harkness admitted that while he was playing, he would intentionally start improvising the song in ways designed to annoy the preacher. At the end of the meeting, Tori came up to the musician and politely asked, Are you a Christian? To which Harkness replied, No, I'm a piano player. By God's grace, soon he was both. He, he continued to travel with this evangelist, and Harkness and Tory ended up back in, uh, in England, and that's where they met up with a lady named Ada Habersham. Miss Habersham was a strong supporter of Charles Spurgeon and Dwight Moody. She took a new interest uh, in these newcomers, and she slipped a piece of paper to Harkness that had some song lyrics, and by 1907, Harkness, the piano player, and this Ada Habersham had actually 
collaborated, completing about 200 different songs together. It is Ada Habershon who wrote the first two verses of He Will Hold Me Fast, which Harkness set to music. It proved popular for a brief time. It got printed in a couple of hymnals, but it was quickly forgotten until over a hundred years later, a member at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., sort of stumbled on the song in an old hymn book, presented it to their song director, Matt Merker, and asked him if this is something that we should sing. And Merker didn't take the bait right away. Some time passed, and eventually he wrote new music for the lyrics and added the third verse that we sang this morning. This is, this is what he said, why he added this third verse about the second coming. Matt Merker said, I was beginning to try my hand at writing new tunes for old texts, mainly as a personal devotional exercise to help aid my own soul in seeking Christ. I pulled out, he will hold me fast again, and the words ministered to me deeply. I wanted to see the resurrection and return of Christ featured in the lyrics, since our hope is guaranteed by the reality that Christ is risen and coming again. And so that's how we have the third verse. We have a new melody by Matt Merker. It's, it's fascinating how the Lord works. He used over a hundred years and three different continents an evangelist, the salvation of a piano player, the songwriting of an English spinster, the curiosity of a church member, and the discouragement of a music and worship leader for this twice-forgotten song to end up in our blue folders this morning. Now, I hope you're ready to move with me to the best part of the message, which is always the text. Jude, chapter 1, if you haven't figured it out. Verses 24 and 25, the very last two verses of Jude. It says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. The final two verses of Jude's letter represent what's known as a doxology. Now, I recognize that's a, a technical term, but it simply means it is a, a statement of praise. Most often, it is a, a lyrical statement of praise. So a moment ago in our song service, we sang what we call the doxology. A simple statement of praise presented as a, a song. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. <clears throat> the New Testament writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit as they wrote to occasionally insert these sort of bursts of enthusiastic praise. Most often these doxologies in the New Testament come when the writer has explained some deep theological truth and can no longer hold back the expressions of praise for all that God has done and all that God is. A few examples of other doxologies in the New Testament include 
Romans 11.36 For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Ephesians 3.20 and 21 Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Or 1 Timothy 1.17. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a bit of evidence that doxologies really are sort of bursts of praise intended to be sung. Most of our children and more than a few adults can sing that last one, 1 Timothy 1.17. To understand why it is that Jude's letter erupts into a doxology at the end, you have to have some brief understanding of what his letter is all about. And that starts with learning that Jude is actually writing a different letter than what he intended to write when he sat down. Look up at verse 3. Jude, verse 3. After the formal greeting in verses 1 and 2, which we'll talk about in a moment, He introduces the letter in verse 3 by saying, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. What Jude is saying there is, this is not the letter that I wanted to write. I intended to write to write to you about the the salvation we share, the common salvation. But instead, I felt compelled, no doubt by the Holy Spirit, to urge you to earnestly contend for the faith. Why he did that is evident. Verse 4 goes on to explain there were some ungodly men who had crept into the assembly of believers secretly in order to twist God's grace and deny the Lord Jesus. So Jude, who, intention, who, who initially intended to write about the shared faith in Jesus, instead is warning about falling away from faith in Jesus. Now we're not going to unpack this whole letter this morning, but you'll see he reminds them through the letter in verse 5 of those delivered from Egypt but judged unfaithful in the wilderness. In verse 7 of Sodom and Gomorrah who suffered the vengeance of fire. In verse 11 he warns of the wicked men of the Old Testament like uh, Cain and Balaam and Korah. Such wickedness, Jude says in verse 12, are spots in your feasts of charity or in other words literally stains on your love feasts. And he warns in verse 16 of falling into the same trap, becoming murmurers, complainers, lustful, speaking of faith but not actually living faithfully, being more concerned about what people think than what God thinks. Those people, he says in verse 19, they separate themselves not having the Spirit. But look at verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building up yourselves in the most holy faith, Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. These calls that Jude makes, and I I may have already called him James once. I've been doing that in my head all week, so it's probably going to happen. 
Okay, but these, these commands that Jude makes to earnestly contend for the faith or to build yourself up in the faith or to keep yourself in the love of God. Listen, these are genuine commands. He's not kidding. We are called as believers in Jesus to fight, to struggle, to, to persevere. But the general tenor of this entire letter is pretty scary. Like, can I really do that? Can I fight hard enough? Can I struggle long enough? Can I persevere firmly enough that I'm not going to fall away like those people did? The problem is I know myself too well. I am far too often a murmurer, a complainer, lustful, speaking of faith more confidently than I feel, too concerned about what others think than what God thinks. How about you? Can you really do this? Not on your own. You cannot do this on your own. Jude calls you to be steadfast, immovable, keeping yourself in the faith, but he knows that you're not alone. And thus, the doxology in the last two verses, unto him who is able to keep you from falling. Within this command and warning, we have to, in verse 21, keep ourselves in the love of God, but there's also the promise that it's our Heavenly Father who is actually going on keeping us from falling. That seems contradictory to some people, but it is not. The warnings in the New Testament about falling away simply do not imply that God will allow us to fall away. I remember back many years ago when my two oldest daughters were probably somewhere between the age of about three and about five, and, and we started to cross the busy intersection in Peoria, and I, I had their hands. And before stepping out in the street, I'd say, now, hold on tight. Should either of them have heard that command and conclude that we're going to get out there in the middle of the street and dad's going to let us go. No. No. Of course not. It's the same way here in Jude. He's, he's ending on this positive note, right? You have to hold on, but praise God, he's the one who's holding on to you. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever, amen. For the rest of this morning, I just want to dive into that doxology and see what it is that has caused Jude to sort of burst into this praise of God. First, he will preserve you from stumbling. The doxology says in verse 24, Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling. Don't skip over that word keep. That word keep there in verse 24 is a, a military term, meaning to guard, to, to protect, to watch over. 
It's different, and, and I want you to make a note of this. this. It's different than the word keep up in verse 21. Verse 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God, and that word there means to remain, to reside, to observe. It's, and it's surrounded by some explanations of how you do that. In verse 20, growing in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, focusing on the mercy of Jesus. Your obedience to the Christian faith and practice is expected as you keep yourself in the love of God. But now Jude follows that up with praising, verse 24, him that is able to keep you from falling. And keep, in verse 24, means to guard, to watch over, to protect. When it comes to your preservation, God is faithfully keeping guard over the soul of every child whom he loves. It may be that Jude has Psalm 121 in mind as he pens these words. That psalm promises God's watch care over all the children of Israel who it pictures as they make a pilgrimage through bandit-covered roads and up that final steps toward the temple. Psalm 121 verses 3 and 4 says, He will not suffer your feet to be moved. He that keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he that keeps Israel shall never slumber nor sleep. The heavenly Father is always at his post, guarding us, watching over us. Jude says he'll keep us from falling. The idea there is that he will keep you from stumbling. He's not going to allow you to stumble over the combined challenges designed by Satan, the world, your own sinful nature, that all try to make you trip up in your Christian walk. Psalm 37, 23 and 24 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hands. Hold on tight. Don't let go, because he is not going to let go of you. God is the supporter and sustainer of his people. If God was not there to keep us from stumbling, it isn't a question of whether or not we would continue in this walk on our own, because it's certain that we wouldn't. We, we couldn't continue without stumbling. It's been rightly said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Every one of us would. Without God's sustaining hand, you'd soon trip. You'd, you'd stumble. You, you would face plants onto the pavement in the most embarrassing way. But don't fear, for God had a plan in his mind before creating this world. And he is the all-powerful, infinitely able God who who holds us even when we begin to fall. He's not going to allow it. Most of you are familiar with Romans 8, 29 and 30, where it speaks of this plan of God and says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. 
This divine plan began with the foreknowledge of God in which he determined to place his love on us so that we are, in Paul's words, predestined by faith in Jesus to be conformed to the image of his Son. And for that reason, we were called by the Holy Spirit and given life and faith in Jesus. And so that we're, we're justified, we're declared innocent because we're given Christ's righteousness. And we are assured through, though, though the trials of this world are many, we will someday be glorified. That divine plan of God assures that there is not one soul whom God loves who's going to be somehow lost along the way. And so Paul wrote to the Philippians and said, we're confident in this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you is able to complete it, to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He will hold you fast. Not only will he preserve you from stumbling, secondly, he'll present you standing. We saw a moment ago how God has predestined believers to be conformed to the image of his son, to be glorified, Paul Paul says. Like, when does that happen? When are you going to experience that? I mean... (laughs) Looking at y'all, I hope you'll forgive me for saying, I'm not looking at perfection. Now, I'm thankful to say that as I know you, I can see Jesus in you. But y'all, it's true about me too. There are some days where you have to look hard and long to see him. You're not quite conformed to the image of God's Son yet. The Apostle John, if you remember, said when this will happen. He says, we are children of God, and while it doesn't yet appear what we will be, we know that when we see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. So Paul says, you're going to be conformed to his image and glorified. John says, you're going to be like him when you see him Face to face. Now listen to Jude in verse 24. Now unto him that's able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Judas, Judah, Jude, <laughs> Judas. <coughs> I'm sure he doesn't appreciate that. Jude is attempting to give us a a visual image that just doesn't come through real well in English. The word present is the Greek word that means to to stand or to, to make something stand. The idea in this verse is that God will preserve you from stumbling and God is going to present you standing in the presence of his glory, it says, faultless, overflowing with joy. If that sounds familiar, it's because you just sang it a few minutes ago. It was a different English songwriter named Edward Mote who was inspired by this verse to write, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And later he writes, faultless to stand before the throne, right? You're dressed in his righteousness alone faultless to stand before the throne, faultless, blameless. 
Spotless is what that means. Can you imagine what it is to be without sin? Already, if you are a believer in Jesus, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. But someday, when you see him face to face, you'll be made into his image. And you will even be saved from the presence of sin. We'll stand faultless before the throne. Actually, Jude says in verse 23 that we should hate even the garment spotted by the flesh. And now, he says, we should be, we're going to be wearing the righteousness of Jesus. We're going to be unspotted. We're going to be faultless. What exceeding joy. Small wonder that Jude sort of explodes in this, into this exultation and praise. Although I know, I know there are days where you feel just like me. <laughs> I'm not so sure I'm going to make it. And sometimes those days turn into weeks and even longer seasons of life. But I am pleading with you, remind yourself that nothing could possibly keep you from this. Nothing can hold you back from this as it's God's purpose. I know there are things that would try to hold you back from it. The world is filled with challenges of sickness and and sin and depression and loneliness and, and failure and hostility. The New Testament isn't silent on those things. Here's what Paul writes in in Romans 8, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul did not say those challenges would not come. They will come. He said those challenges will not win. He's going to hold us fast. Even as we earnestly contend for the faith and keep ourselves in his love, God is all-wise and all-powerful, and he has sealed this promise with the blood of his son, Jesus, and he has embraced us with love that will not let us go. This isn't just where Jude ends. It's actually where Jude started. Look up at verses 1 and 2. And just as a side note, you have to love, as you read verse 1, that Jude, who is a half-brother of Jesus himself, right? Jude is the full-blooded son of Mary and Joseph. But he calls himself in verse 1 the brother of James and the servant of Jesus Christ. Nothing special about me beyond any other Christian. (laughs) Simply a servant of Jesus. 
In verses 1 and 2, Jude writes to those who he says are sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ, the Son, and called by the Holy Spirit. Don't you think that if you're called by the Holy Spirit, preserved in Jesus the Son, and sanctified, made holy by the Father, that your place in them is secure? He says with confidence in verse 2 that such people have mercy, peace, and love that is multiplied. There is this exponential explosion of God's goodness to us. When God is determined to make you stand before his presence, nothing is going to keep you from that. Not even yourself. I'm thankful every time I remember that that God knew just how rebellious and stupid I am before he ever got involved with me. So despite ourselves, we are not going to be dragged kicking and screaming before his presence. We're not going to be pulled along to the throne unwillingly. Jude says we're going to stand with exceeding joy, overwhelming joy. He's going to preserve you from stumbling. He's going to present you standing. Third, then, his praise should be our passion. The nature of doxology is that while it praises God for what he does, it always, always grounds that praise in who he is. We're thankful for what God does. But the things God has done are not the objects of our worship. God and who he is is the object of our worship. So verse 25, Jude goes on to say, To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. In that first phrase, Jude is not suggesting that somehow there are other gods, but ours is the wisest. He's assuring his readers that there is only one God and that in his wisdom he's seen fit to be our Savior. Note how personal that is. He's our Savior, Jude says. Through faith in Jesus alone, God can be called our Savior. There is no salvation but through God. Then Jude offers four praiseworthy descriptions of God's greatness, like four pillars that are just holding up this praise. Glory and majesty, dominion and power. Glory here refers to the reputation of God's Splendor or brightness is what glory means. He is light. He is radiant. He is glorious. Majesty ascribes royalty to God's person. He's not just the royal king. He is the the king of kings. Dominion is a description of the omnipotence or the all-powerful nature of God. He's all-powerful. He is able to do whatever he wants, whatever is impossible with man. Jesus said all things are possible with God. There is nothing that God can't do. 
And power is a little different than we would usually think. This, this Greek word exousia means something closer to authority. So while dominion means that God has the ability to do whatever he wants, power means that God has the right to do whatever he wants. If he was anything less than a God of complete glory and majesty and dominion and power, then you would have adequate reason to to be concerned about his ability to hold you fast. But we can praise him because this is what he is. He is glorious and majestic in all power and authority. Every ability and every right to do what he wants belongs to him. And it's unchanging, Jude says. So it's both now and forever. There's actually many New Testament manuscripts that here say before all time and now and forever. There is never a moment from before creation to this very moment where you're sitting here this morning to the eternal future in his presence where God is not ready, willing, and able to hold us fast. Beloved church, for each of you who is a believer in Jesus, no matter how this moment finds you, this text of scripture should be speaking to us this morning. It should well up into our heart and just overflow of praise and, and, and wanting to sing the joyful song that matches it. Regardless of the situations in which you find yourself, if you know that you're older and you're, you're coming near life's end, or if you're young enough that your whole life stands open before you and it scares you to death, if you're struggling with the loss of a loving spouse, if you're closing a faithful chapter of service to God and you're not sure what's next, or if you're, you're facing the daunting challenge of picking up the mantle of ministry in some new way, Or maybe you're dealing with physical challenges of of sickness and surgery. Or maybe you're just in a season of disobedience and discouragement. Make these verses the doxology of your life. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only Wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Hold tightly to him because he's holding on to you.